First Corinthians chapter five, first Corinthians chapter five. That's where we're putting in tonight, five and six. First Corinthians five and six. So what we've been looking at is Paul's message to a group of Christians in a Roman colony known as Corinth, southern Greece. And he's writing to them about a series of problems, problems that any human being can have. And he's trying to bring this congregation into a unity because this congregation has become very competitive. Now, it's not a sort of thing where it's back row versus front row, right wing versus left wing. It's not that kind of a competition because the Corinthian church wouldn't meet like we're doing now. There simply was nothing large enough to host a a gathering this size. So they would meet in homes of the more wealthy within the body, and you would have maybe 20 at most, maybe 30 in each fellowship around the city. And so it was possible for these different fellowships to start to get into competition with one another. We have a better teacher than you do. Our guy knows what's up, and your guy's sort of an old dinosaur. And we do the communion properly, and you baptize strangely. And this sort of shots are being taken across the board. So Paul has been writing to get these fellowships to become one. Because Jesus prayed in John 17, as he was about to go to the cross, Father, please let them be one together as you and I are one. And so that our unity is meant to be a model, a picture, an example of the unity between the Son of God and the Father, so that we do not serve a pagan God, where uh, paganism had many mythologies about gods fighting with each other and um, other strange behavior, but rather there's a unity and there's a oneness. And that as God is bringing different people from different backgrounds and different social backgrounds together as one. He's doing that with us and him. He's bringing us as one. And he's bringing warring nations together to be one. And and all the divisions in the earth. The message of the gospel is oneness. That God is healing and he's uniting. And so Paul pleads that the church can be a, a picture of that. Please be one. So in 1 verse 10, that's where he says it. Please agree with one another, no divisions, no uh, fighting factions, but become one. And so we've looked at this message. He, in the first few chapters, pleaded, please, one message. All right, all your teachers are teaching one message. Don't start to say this guy's right and this guy's wrong just because they might have different charismatic personalities. They're all preaching the cross that I came to preach too. And that is a foolish message to the world because nobody wants to follow a criminal of Rome who was crucified by Caesar as an enemy. Nobody wants to follow that. But that's our message because we don't care about popularity. We care about bringing people in unity. And Paul's saying those that are preaching that same message, don't, don't criticize them as being foolish because this is God's wisdom. And you guys aren't going to divide yourselves over who has the most earthly wisdom and who has the divine wisdom. You guys don't do that. Follow those who are preaching the crucified Jesus. That's the one message we're all unified under. And stop saying they're wrong just because they do something a little bit differently. Then he talks about the one foundation. I want the church being built up on the one foundation, which is Jesus. And we don't know how everybody's building up. So his point is, don't start dividing yourselves and saying we're better than you because you don't actually know how you're building upon this foundation until the final day when fire comes and tests what you're building with. That's when you'll find out, oh, Pastor Mike's work burnt down 
like wood and hay and stubble. It apparently wasn't much. And Pastor John's work, well, it's gleaming and it's glistening after the fire. And that gold and those precious metals and silver is still standing. And so Paul's saying, look, it might appear like I am doing a better job than Apollos or vice versa. But you don't actually know that. Don't judge us too early. The fire at the end will test what we are using to build upon the foundation. And so just follow the one message. Stick to the one foundation. Stop judging each other and making this competition against one another. Let's be one. Well, ironically, in chapters 5 and 6, which is tonight, we're looking at one law. And the reason for one law is that Paul is going to now enact a law upon the church. And he is going to not only judge them, but ask each other to judge each other. You're like, what? whoa, wait a minute. He just said, don't judge each other and realize that we're all building on the same foundation. We don't know how many people are doing a great job and who are not. So stop judging, stop dividing. Now he's like, okay, now judge each other. Like, what is this? This is backwards. Second problem with his command to judge and this idea of a law coming into the church is, wait a minute. I thought that we were saved by grace and that it's not through the works of the law, but grace has come to save us from the law. And now uh, it doesn't really matter what we do, but Jesus has forgiven us and he's going to save us regardless. But we hear Paul bringing in a law and asking them to judge each other according to it. Like, what is this? So I need to say right up front that Paul is not against having a law that governs the people of God Paul is against having a law as a means to earning someone's salvation. So Paul is not against having rules or having some sort of structure to bring the people together in a certain direction. But he is against them using this against one another to say, well, you're not good enough and Jesus won't accept you until you get that right. That's what he's against. But there is a law within the church, and that's what we're going to look at tonight. One law, and this law is meant to bring them into oneness and to bring order and to establish justice within the people who should know justice best, the church. So that's where we're going tonight. And then next week, um, Pastor Mike is going to take a stab at 1 Corinthians, and he's going to do a very good job, and he's going to have a very difficult passage. So go easy. It's chapter seven next week and he's going to be talking about one marriage and there's a lot of topics like sex and uh marriage and singleness in there and so he's got the fun task of doing that you're welcome (laughs) so i planned my getaway around that chapter um so we've prayed so let's go in all right chapter five and six one law and again Paul's not against laws. He's against laws as a means to salvation. So why is he going to talk about a law that the people need to govern themselves with? It's very simple. Laws promote oneness. These laws are going to bring judgment and judgment's going to bring order and order's going to bring oneness. The people are not one because they have very different ideas of how to do things and how to punish this person, how to go about that and what to call sin and what not to call sin. And are we allowed to listen to this kind of music? And are we allowed to drink and all these things? These things are opinionated across the board, right? But Paul's saying, wait, let's not divide over these issues. Let's come down to one law. I want to bring order. I want to teach you guys how to go about bringing, uh, that's wrong. We need to correct this and saying that's, that's different, but that's okay. We'll let that go. How do we go about doing that? And so Paul's going to say this law, 
It's to bring order. It's to bring oneness. This is necessary. It's vital. You guys have been a little too weak, a little too soft with each other. Like, oh, whatever. They can do what they want. They're so enlightened. And that's actually dividing the body. So he's saying we got to come down to the foundation again, the message again, and establish a law built upon that so that there's oneness and agreement. That's what he's aiming at. So we often think when we hear the word judge or judgment, or law. We think very negative, right? We think, um, especially in light of the recent media coverage, oh, police, bad, right? They're doing a bad job at governing and bringing order. Well, you know, that's sometimes we have a negative view of this stuff. Uh, at school, you know, the, all the students are like, why can't we use cell phones in classroom and stuff like that? Like, laws are bad. And uh, we also hear Jesus say, do not judge lest you be judged. So like, hey, don't judge me, brother. Stop talking to me. It's not your business. So what is this, like, this judgment thing? Rather than thinking of it negatively, we have to sometimes go back and refresh what it actually means so that we can understand what the Bible's against is an improper use of judgment, but it's all for a proper use of judgment. So judging does not always mean condemning. It simply means righting wrongs. To judge is to right a wrong. So you see something wrong that happens in the body of Christ. Paul says, I want you guys to stand up and judge that. Bring that wrong to right. Fix it. Make it better. Make it proper. So that's one way that you judge. Another thing that judgment can bring is it can bring clarity. It can bring decision between right versus wrong or good versus evil. And sometimes that's muddled. And we need judges that rise up and say, well, let's, let's draw the line here. This is black. This is white. So judgment there can be good. It brings boundaries. It brings structure and order. And then finally, judgment can be salvation think about it if you're an oppressed person because some powerful rich dude is oppressing you and putting restrictions on you and he's doing wrong things against you to have a judge step in and fix that is your salvation it's your liberation that's a good thing and so that's what paul wants to bring into the church he wants to right wrongs. He wants to bring clarity between right and wrong, good and evil, black and white. And he wants to liberate the poorer in the church who are being taken advantage of by the richer in the church. And so when he says judge, we need to retrain our mind to think, wait a minute, judgment can be a good thing. Besides, Jesus said, you'll know who the wolves, who the false prophets are by their fruit. If I want to get apples and I come to a tree and they're oranges and I say, that's not an apple, that's an orange, the tree's not going to be, how dare you judge me? (laughs) That's just straight facts. You're an orange. And that's what we got to call an orange an orange and an apple an apple. And that's what Paul wants the judgment to do in the church. It's not to say, I don't like what they're doing, so I'm going to condemn it as wrong. It's no, call wrong what is wrong and make right what isn't yet right. That's the idea. So, um, He's going to tell them to bring judgment. And so Paul's going to exercise this a little bit for them. He's going to kind of urge them on into this because they need a little encouragement. And frankly, we do too. Especially when you hear how he tells them to do this in chapter 5. You're like, whoa, that doesn't happen today. And it doesn't. Because I don't know that we put on our big church pants and, you know, put on the sheriff buckle and say, this is the law. But this is what Paul wants. And so we're going to look at this, see how much of this connects with us, and how we're going to go about doing this in our own church, in our own fellowships, in the church at large. So chapter one, or chapter five, verse one. So Paul says to his disbelief, it is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, 
and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans, for a man has taken his father's wife. Wow. So, okay. Ancient Rome was very loose sexually. Their morals were not very rigid and clean. Uh, Visiting prostitutes was a very, very common. You wouldn't really bat an eyelash at the fact that, oh, so-and-so went to a prostitute this weekend. That was a very normal way of doing your business, uh, having your free time. That's very normal. Um, But they did have some restrictions. And taking your father's wife, now this isn't necessarily his mother, but maybe his father's second wife or something, uh, and, and having her as a wife, uh, they did see that as shameful. And Paul's going, okay, okay. in this sexually perverse culture that allows so much, they don't even allow this, and yet the church is allowing this. This is wrong. This needs to be dealt with. This is pathetic that you guys can't even, again, put on your, your big church pants and put on your sheriff's buckle and get it done. This is, I need, so he's going to really come and kick them into action. Like, get going on this. What are you thinking? So in verse 2. And you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. Now, they're arrogant about this? Likely what's happening is in one of the fellowships, uh, this event happened, this affair happened, and this fellowship is being accused by others. And they're saying, well, at least we're free to live without restrictions. And the other, like, you know, there's just this argument, and they're boasting about it. They're basically saying, this is demonstration of the grace of God in us. Paul's like, you've got to be kidding me. Deal with this. So he wants all of them to put their heads together and deal with this. So Paul is going to kind of motivate them here in verse 3. For though I am absent in body, I am present in spirit. And as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus and my spirit is present, uh, what that means is that super mystical, like Paul's spirit's floating around in the room. I don't really know what Paul's thinking when he says that, but maybe likely what it is, is as the head of the church is reading this letter from Paul to the congregation. Um, he may be saying that he's present in spirit through the words written. So that what you're reading, when you read this judgment, um, that's my spirit with you. This is what I want to happen. That could be what that means. So... When you're gathered and my spirit is present, middle of verse 4, with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Oh, can you guys imagine? Next week, uh, I'll be gone, so I want to see this, but Pastor Mike's going to call a man forward and we're going to deliver him to Satan. Everyone be here to encourage this. Like, what? I'm not any, and I want anything to do with that. That sounds crazy. But what Paul is saying is to deliver him to Satan is, okay, in his view, the church is a safety net from the present evil that's ruling. And this is Satan's world, he sees. Satan has a lot of influence in the Roman culture and the Corinthian culture. And so the church has become sort of a safety. Like, this is the little remnant that's living the true way of God. And kick this man out of the church, you're literally giving him over to Satan to sort of live the way of the Corinthian culture. If he wants to do this, let him do it. Let him destroy himself, Paul says. Because when he is finally out of the church and he sees the culture for what it is, he may remember, oh my goodness, this is not the destiny I want. And he may come back. It may save his soul. That's what he's saying. 
Now, you got to think, and this is maybe why we don't do this today. Um, if we today, especially in Orange County, up here actually, it's really bad up here too, uh, and in Orange County, um, you kick somebody out of your church, like, I don't like you guys anyways, and they go two streets down and they're at another church. Like, oh, big deal. They didn't actually get kicked out of the church. They got kicked out of one little fellowship, right? That's why it doesn't really seem to work today because people just hop churches like, well, I don't like that pastor anyways, or those people were mean. So they just circle, you know, they make the circuit around and they eventually come back 20 years later, like, oh, you're back. And like, yeah, I didn't like any other church. And like that, that's the way things are. And sadly, church discipline, bringing law and order into the church is lacking because we feel powerless because we're just like, we want to like keep people from leaving and going in and tasting all the other churches rather than just bring our big church pants again and bring the sheriff's buckle and badge. And so in Paul's context, this was a severe judgment. This was, there's no other option. So this man either is going to choose Satan or choose the church. So it's like to Paul, it's amputation of an infection. This is why he takes it this severely. If you have gangrene spreading from the foot up, you got to cut off the foot to save the body. And this is Paul's idea. We have to cut off this man, this individual, for the sake of oneness in the church. This is, how, this is what we got to do. We're amputating the infection. Okay, so now he uses an illustration in verse 6. Um, he tells them their boasting's not good and that they're to cleanse out the old leaven. Because Christ, Jesus, is our Passover lamb. So the Jews celebrated Passover once a year. It was their festival of liberty from Egypt. And they left Egypt in such a hurry that they ate their bread unleavened. It was unraised. They just had to eat it quickly. They had to pack it so they didn't want it raised. They wanted it flat. And that's what they did. So every Passover season, they would celebrate this and they would actually cleanse out. And they still do this to this day. They go on a leaven hunt in their homes and they get all the leaven out, the old leaven, and start over. It's a cleansing. And that's the example Paul's using is get rid of the old leaven. Let's start over, cut them off so that we can continue to move on. Now, what leaven did is leaven was fermented dough. And what they would do is when they make a batch of bread, um, they would take off part of that batch and put it aside for the next loaf of bread. And so then they would um, put that little uh, fermented leaven into the new dough and it would ferment this one. And they take a little piece out and put it aside for the next one. So it was like chain. It was uh, contagious through chain. One loaf affected another, affected another, affected another. And Eventually, this could be very, um, it could get very hazardous to your health. So once a year, the Jews, usually at pastime, they Passover, they would get rid of all of that leaven and just start over with brand new leaven, unless it gets too infected. So Paul's idea here is start over because this is what is at danger here. This is what's at risk. If you leave this man to do his thing, he's going to be like that little piece of dough and it's going to affect the next lump, the next loaf. It's going to affect the next loaf. It's going to slowly spread through the body. It's going to affect one person after another. And we got to cut this off before the infection spreads. So that's Paul's um, advice. In verse 11, he summarizes, I'm sorry, in verse uh, 13, he summarizes with this. God judges those outside before he said, we judge the church. So purge the evil person from among you quoting from Deuteronomy. So that's his summary. Amputate this evil. 
Now, what you saw in chapter 5 is a model of a criminal case. What we're going to see in chapter 6 is a model of a civil case. Here's the difference. Uh, Paul sees that this offender is a criminal in the eyes of the church. What he did, that is really bad. He did something bad. So what the, what the Jewish body would do, according to the law, is in a criminal case, it was up to the head of the community and the community at large to agree on casting somebody out of the community. And you can read about that in the Old Testament. And that what Paul is doing is he's taking charge and he's saying, listen up. I want you guys to be in agreement with me that we must kick out this person. And maybe it will save him. But for our sake of oneness, we need to get rid of this. And so he takes this on as a criminal case and he takes charge. And he asks for the vote. He asks for them to be in agreement and to move on it. Now in chapter 6, a civil case. Civil cases were dealt with a little bit differently. You might remember that Moses was once when the people were leaving Egypt, he was spending all day long sitting and listening to every petty civil case that came his way. You're right, you're wrong. Oh, him this and that next. And all day he did that until um, his father-in-law encouraged him, hey, you're going to kill yourself. Appoint other judges to rise up and take these for you. So he did. And there was a system of judges. These judges dealt with little matters, these bigger matters. And then Moses himself dealt with the biggest matters. And Paul now in chapter 6 is going to urge the church to, hey, some of you know justice and you need to step up and become part of a judging system so that we don't end up taking each other to secular courts. That's what he's going to urge now. He sees that there is a problem in chapter 6. What is the problem? It's this. Um, that one of you has a grievance against another and he dares to go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints. So, okay, two people in church are fighting, like, let's deal with this. I'm going to see you in court. I'm suing you. And they end up going to a pagan ruler to decide their case. And Paul's like, no, no, no. It's a civil case. You guys can act civilly. You guys can act civilized. You guys can deal with this yourselves. So Paul urges them, Judge this among yourselves. You know, your pastors and, and their elders and other righteous, Jesus-like people, they can judge these things. You guys don't need to go to court against one another. So, what's the specific problem? It's greed. And we're going to see this. So let's go ahead and read chapter 6. When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? <laughs> Hello, you guys can't judge yourselves. Listen, in the future, you're going to be judging the entire world. So get your act together. You guys got to know what you're going to become so that you can start acting like it now. And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more than matters pertaining to this life? Simple, little, easy bickerings between one another. You can't handle that? What's wrong with you, Corinthians? Now, I say this to your shame in verse 5. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers? But brother goes to brother, brother goes to law against brother, and that before unbelievers? Now here he's very sarcastic. Can it be that there's no one wise enough? 
Now, do you remember last week we finished with Paul talking about how they are actually boasting about how they have no need of Paul. They've got everything made. They're the perfect Christians. The church is great. And Paul's like, really? Really? So you, you're living in heaven right now while I'm suffering and I'm going hungry and the apostles are struggling to get the message out? He's like, you guys are arrogant. Stop being arrogant. And they thought they're all wise. Like, we got it all figured out. And now Paul says, okay, wise ones. Is there really no one wise enough to deal with this simple little argument in the church? What is this? So he's very sarcastic with them. He's trying to get them to realize their own um, insolence. And so uh, Paul urges them in verse 7. To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud your own brothers. That's the problem. No one wants to be wronged. Instead, they're going about wronging each other. And more than likely, what the scholars have researched and are suggesting is that the rich in Corinth were taking the poor in the church. So the rich in the church, the poor in the church, they're taking them to court because they're trying to defraud them and gain something from them. This is greed. Now, what happens is in the Roman court system, the judges came from the upper tiers of the social class. So when you would go to court, uh, if you're a rich person taking a poor person to court, well, the judges already have put the court in your favor as a rich person. Why? Because the judges want to be in your circle of influence. Upper class people, upper class people looking to expand their influence and their honor, right? And so they're taking the poor and the judge looks at the poor and says, there's nothing you can do for me, but this rich guy, I want to go to his next party. I want to keep the connections going. He can help me. Oh, and also judges uh, listen to bribes. Money talked. And so if the rich man offered the judge enough money, the judge would just fix the whole case. And so the rich often, more often than not, won each case in the Roman court system. It was not blind justice. In America, we have blind justice. The, remember, we have a lady, is it, uh, the, the statue of a lady holding the scales, and she's blind. She's trying to fairly equate, regardless of who's suing who, who's in the right and who's in the wrong. But in Rome, it didn't really matter what happened. It mattered who you were. And so you could uh, go into court and really make a killing off of the poor. So, likely, rich people in the church were ripping off the poor in the church. And why are they going to a secular court? Because they know they can win. If they were judged in the church, the church might be impartial and fair, and they may not win the case. So Paul's livid. He's saying, wait a minute. You're defrauding each other? Your own brother. This is not the way of Jesus at all. So why not just take the blame? Why not just take the wrong? Even if this poor guy did something to you, you've got enough money. Just take the blow. Say, I forgive you, brother. Let's move on. We don't have to. You know nothing of forgiveness. If that's your mentality, I've got to fix this in the court system. I was like, do you know how much Jesus let you off the hook for? And he didn't take you to God's tribunal and said, all right, God, you know what he deserves. Let's get on with it. That'd be horrible. You, me, 
We may not be judges. I may have never spent a single second in law school. I worked with lawyers before, and they are, they're interesting. But um, I think they go to school too long, honestly. It's probably detrimental. Anyways, um, we may not have a lick of that in our experience. But we already, according to Paul, have more understanding about how to handle justice and, do, and making right what is wrong than any high-studied scholar or, or lawyer or judge in the universe. Why? Because of verse 11 of chapter 6. He says this, And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of Jesus. Justified. What does that mean? It means you went to God's courtroom. He was a judge. He looked at you and all the wrong that you did and said, Jesus actually took the wrong for you already. You're forgiven. Now, Paul's saying, if you've really had that experience as a Christian, you should know how to enact that towards those that are wronging you right now. You, Christian, know the justice of God. It's turning the other cheek. It's forgiving large, massive debts. It's being wronged rather than wronging each other. And Paul's urging here, hey, take up your cross way before you put each other on the cross. You need to take the wrong, verse 7. You need to be defrauded. And why not? What do you have to lose? We have way more to lose by being divided then we have to lose by suffering for one another. So Paul's saying, hey, suffering is better than suing. Just take the blow, follow Jesus. He did the same. So that's what he encourages them to do. Now, in verse 9, do you not know that the unrighteous, those that keep defrauding, you can assume he has in his mind, the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. Do not be deceived. In other words, don't keep lying to yourself. Well, if, if God knew how I feel, he would understand. Don't deceive yourselves. Don't listen to Corinthian culture and just do whatever they do. Don't be deceived. These are the 10 vices that will keep you out of God's kingdom. He's going to name 10 of them. 10 vices. Isn't that interesting? How in Exodus there was the 10 laws of God to Israel and the 10 commandments, we call them. Here are now the 10, oh no, stay away from these, the 10 vices. So he's kind of picking up on the whole 10 theme here. And he's going to give them to them. So these are going to keep you out of the kingdom. Do not be deceived, neither sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality. New King James has in there, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor the drunkards, nor the revilers, nor the swindlers. Did you hear them down there at the bombalists, the greedy, the swindlers, the revilers? Will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you are washed and sanctified and you are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ by the spirit of our God. Wow. So if you're in the King James Version, you're reading... 10 vices listed right there. You can count them up. If you're in a newer translation, like the English standard, you're going to see nine. Reason being, homosexuality is actually two Greek words. One refers to the active partner. One refers to the passive partner. So Paul is lumping both of them in there. And modern translations just put the all together as homosexuality. So you might read nine words there, but it's actually 10 in the Greek. So there's 10 vices here. 
and Paul, you can see he's accusing them or he's accusing what the behavior, not the orientation. Nowhere does he say those of you who feel like being greedy or those of you who happen to feel attractions toward this person or that person. He doesn't say anything like that. He says those who are enacting these things will not inherit the kingdom of God. This is a behavioral problem. And it's clear that Paul believes that God will deliver people from these behaviors. He says, and such were some of you. And if he can't deliver, or if some reason you're not delivered from the behaviors, we know that he's not accusing them of the orientation once again. We sometimes... Just go into it. Um, there's there's uh, homophobia in the church, and we look at this list, and the one that stands out to all of us, and you know what happened to you, was homosexuality. Yeah, there it is. And we're thinking about how we're going to vote politically next time in light of this verse. Listen, we glorify this evil above all others, and I'm not sure why. Maybe because it's strange to us and we don't understand it. And those things were like, ugh. We, we're grossed out by things we don't understand. But listen, we all have orientations or inclinations towards one sin or another. Someone may have feelings for another man. You may have feelings to have an affair. You may have feelings to get more money because you found a loophole in your tax system or in your business. We have feelings everywhere. You may have feelings of hatred for another person. We have these feelings and inclinations abounding in us. But for some reason, if I feel like I like another man as a man, that is somehow worse than feeling like you want to hurt somebody. Paul puts all of these in the same list. And the issue is, how do you act upon your orientation? I don't care who, what man among us likes another man or what woman among us, among us likes another woman. These things happen. And it doesn't mean that you are somehow falling off the tree in the wrong place and you're hopeless and you need to just act out on what you feel. That's what the world says. Be your true self. If you feel this, you've got to do it. And if you don't do what you feel like doing, you're being inauthentic and you're somehow being cheated and you're submitting yourself to some awful law system. But Paul would be saying, no, 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 wait, wait, wait a minute. We all have false inclinations, whether it's that or this. And the idea of becoming Christian, of being more than merely human, more than just a mere Corinthian pervert in this culture, is to take these feelings and say, hmm, by the power of the Holy Spirit, I think the right direction is not that way, and I'm going to choose differently, regardless of what my body wants to do. That's what Paul's calling them to. And he's asking for judges in the church to stand up and help each other, bring the order and cut off the infection where it is so that we prevent these 10 vices from running rampant in the church. When these, you let these vices go and explode in this room, we would never be one. Never. We would have people fighting over our spouses because, well, all things are lawful. I can have whoever I want. We'd have people fighting over who took what money unlawful. This would never bring oneness ever so paul's asking you guys need to stand up and you need to you need to start correcting the wrongs or we're going to split the seam and you know what we may never have a dramatic like moment where all of a sudden we all suddenly can't stand each other and like the amalekites in the old testament start drawing swords on one another and then you know we all lose that way somehow that may never happen but it's happening under the radar all the time 
people quietly slip out of one fellowship, maybe even stop going to church altogether because of some issue like this, because nobody was willing to correct a wrong or to deliver the oppressed. They're just slipping out quietly. And we think, oh, we're one. Look at us, hallelujah. We're all in here. Nobody's strangling one another. It's beautiful, isn't it? I've seen people act this well-behaved in a movie, watching gross things on the screen. Well, I haven't seen that, but you, you, know, the, you know the point. Um, like, that's, this isn't oneness, because ooh, we're, we're mild-mannered people sitting together. No, no. There is division right now as we speak between some of us, maybe even a lot of us. And we need to be willing to stand up for the wronged, in love, right? Jesus didn't go to the cross and say, all you losers, you don't deserve anything. And he just didn't start preaching a sermon of condemnation upon us. He just simply took the cross and said, they will see, they will get it. And that's what we need to do. We don't need to start isolating people, making public examples and shaming them and saying, everybody, look at it. That's called crucifying somebody. We simply need to start taking the wrongs upon ourselves rather than fighting back and letting people see it. Silently, like a seed, right, being sown, as Jesus said. And that's how Jesus is working today. He just hung on the cross. And we're looking, and people are, one by one, we're beginning to get it. We're beginning to say, wow, that is what love and kingdom and oneness looks like. So rather than these ten vices, Paul is calling for one virtue. It's in verse 7. We've already covered it. Why not? be defrauded why not suffer wrong flies under the radar right kind of read over that oh yeah of course no that's the one powerful virtue that overcomes all 10 vices if we would be willing to die to our own feelings that the feelings that don't line up with god if we'd be willing to die to the feelings of revenge or exacting um you know, you did this to me, Mike, so I demand this from you. If we would be willing to just let these things go, how much more beautifully people would get along. And we may never demand something from somebody, but inside you're harboring a debt against somebody. And that's why you don't talk to them, or that's why you're short with them, or that's why you never include them. Because inside, and you've never told them anything, but you just kind of keep your distance because inside they have an insurmountable debt against you. And you're going to make sure it stays that way until they somehow come crawling to you and asking for forgiveness. Hmm. I'm glad God didn't do that. I would not have crawled to him and asked for forgiveness if he didn't first reach out to me, suffer wrong, and be defrauded at my expense. That's amazing what he did. And Paul's asking for the same model. The cross is the one virtue that conquers every vice and every divisiveness. And we need to be people who actually man up and say, yeah, we follow crucified Savior, and this is how you know it by taking our own crosses, not just lip service. So he's asking for judges to stand up, not pointing the finger, but these judges are a very different sort. They're silently taking up the crosses themselves, and they're by example demonstrating what looks right. So here's our question then, after we've looked at the criminal, the criminal judgment Paul gives in chapter 5, the civil judgment in chapter 6, uh, the question I'm naturally left with, and as I, you know, even as I'm saying this, you're like realizing how dangerous a message like this could be. We're going to, right after we say amen, you're going to stand up and start accusing each other. Like, oh my goodness, what happened? New York Stock Exchange, except it's about morality and not money. <laughs> um, 
how do we handle this properly? How do we enact the one law of the church without bringing legalism? Because that's the danger. I happen to live like this and it's more righteous and you are a sinner. And now we start to divide one another over these little things. Wait, how do we prevent legalism yet bring justice and law? Paul doesn't have an answer like, well, you just tell them it like this and you do this. He doesn't do that. Paul simply tells stories. He tells stories from the Old Testament and says, hey, work your framework, work your law around this framework. Here it is. And I'm going to tell it to you in a minute. Here it is. And now I want you to figure it out within these boundaries. Lots of liberty, yet structure and order. So let's look at this. Now, it's in chapter 6, verse 12, and we're going to do this last section. And um, what you're going to see is three excuses from the Corinthians. They're basically three appeals, right? Paul's like, okay, I want judgment. I want one law in the church. And they're like, we appeal. We don't want to do this. And um, Paul's like, no, no more excuses. Come on. Big church pants, let's go. Let's get it done. So, here we go. 6 verse 12. Excuse number one. And by the way, if you're in the New King James, you're not going to have quotations. If you're in like the English Standard, or I I think even the NIV, other translations, they'll put quotations in certain places. You're going to see how helpful this is for understanding. Because what's happening is, uh, Paul's writing what the Corinthians were saying, and then he's answering Okay, and in the actual Greek, there weren't quotation marks. So you have to kind of read it and out of context, figure out what are the Corinthians saying and what's Paul saying. So just so you know, I'll I'll give you quotes so it's easier to follow. So verse 12, we begin with quotes. In other words, this is the Corinthians. This is what they're saying. All things are lawful for me, end quote. Paul, but not all law things are helpful. Quote, all things are lawful for me, end quote. Now, Paul. But I will not be enslaved to anything. Okay, you see what they're doing? The Corinthians are saying, well, we don't need one law in the church because all things are lawful. And Paul's saying, really? Uh, Not all things are helpful and I will not be enslaved by anything. That's the one law. So yes, now notice he never corrects it and says, uh, actually, no, nothing's lawful. He never says that they were wrong. He says, no, we need conditions on this. Yes, all things are lawful, but... Not everything's going to help you, and not everything will keep you free. His understanding comes from creation in Genesis 1 and 2. There in Genesis 1, God creates man, and he tells the man and the woman, you guys rule over everything. I want you to have dominion over the birds of the air, the fish of the sea, the animals on the land, the plants of the field. Everything, rule it all. So the biblical, uh, the Bible begins with man ruling everything. Everything is lawful. He's the king under God. But then uh, they sin, they rebel against God, the fall happens, and what you have is a reversal. You have now not man ruling over all of God's creation, but the creation ruling over man. And now we struggle with famine. We struggle with drought. We struggle with natural disasters. We struggle with figuring out how to keep shelters from letting water leak in. And we struggle against thorns and thistles. Everything's a struggle. The creation, more often than not, dictates how we behave. And you look at that around, the ten vices. Creation itself. Okay, sex, a created thing. Sex is driving people. Wine, it comes from the fruit of the vine, right? A created thing. But it is driving people as they get drunk. 
The creation rules the human being, and that's a problem. We're enslaved to it. We're not our own rulers anymore. But then Jesus comes, and Jesus changes all of this. And in the midst of a world where creation rules over us, and we have people that can't walk, people can't see, people can't hear, people that are demon-possessed, Jesus walks into all of this, and he says, disease, go away. Demon, go away. Lame person, walk. Person missing a limb, let it grow back. You know, withered hand, come back. He tells fish, I want you to go on that side of the boat. And the apostles pull it up and it's so many fish, they can't haul it in. He tells Peter, hey, the next fish you catch, your temple tax will be in there. And lo and behold, it's in there. Jesus goes into Jerusalem riding on a donkey that had never been broken, never ridden before. In the midst of a loud shouting crowd, this animal should have been frozen stiff and bucking him off. But he rides it with mastery into Jerusalem. How does he do all this? Because he's like Adam, unfallen. He has complete rule and mastery over the creation. He's resembling what humanity was created to be and do. And that's what Paul says in 6 verse 2. Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? You will be in charge of it. Daniel 7.22, God delivers to the saints the kingdom so that they may judge. Revelation 3.21, Jesus says, whoever uh, overcomes will sit with me on my throne. Revelation 5.10, they sing to God, and you have made us a kingdom of priests to rule over the earth. This is the vision of the Bible, is that human beings control the creation. Now, the Corinthians are saying, all things are lawful. And Paul's like, you're right. But some things are not allowing you to rule creation. They're making you slaves to creation. So, okay, I can have, I can go sleep with prostitutes, as they're doing, you're going to find out in a minute. I can go sleep with prostitutes. And Paul's like, well, I mean, I wouldn't suggest it because you're going to be ruled by sex. And people ruled by things like that aren't fit for ruling God's earth, new heaven and new earth in the kingdom to come. So I don't suggest it. Do you see what he's saying? He's saying, you guys missed it because you don't understand creation. Understand creation, you're going to understand now how to better judge and rule in your midst. Excuse number two is in verse 13. Quote, so Corinthians, food is meat for the stomach and the stomach for food. The ESV ends the quote there, but I think, and many other commentators believe it goes further. And God will destroy both one and the other, end quote. So what are they saying? Okay, so food is for the stomach, stomach's for food. Uh, these things are mutual, but God's going to destroy it all in the end anyway, so it doesn't really matter. And we've all said this before. It's all going to burn anyway, so it doesn't matter. But what the Corinthians were saying is this is a proverb for basically the body for sex and sex for the body. And since God's going to destroy the body in the end, it doesn't matter how we use it right now. So let's go visit the prostitutes every weekend. Let's have fun. And it, it makes sense, actually, honestly. If God's going to destroy the body and none of this physical stuff matters, then it really doesn't matter how we use them. Because what matters is the spirit. That's what matters. And so the Corinthians live with a dichotomy. The body does one thing, worldly stuff. The spirit does godly things. But Paul's going to say, you got it wrong. There's no dichotomy. Sex involves body and spirit. And following Jesus involves body and spirit. They're both one and they work together. So, this is how he explains it. It's through a word we use called resurrection. The resurrection of Jesus demands we take our bodies and we take the physical world as seriously as we take the spiritual world. So, he answers. 
We're in uh, verse 13 still. The body is meant, is not meant for sexual immorality, but it's for the Lord and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never! Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For it is written, the two shall become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee sexual immorality. That's his answer. Listen, God rose Jesus from the dead. How did he rise? He was raised in a body. We know that. Why? The tomb was empty. Jesus ate food in Luke's account. Um, They were able to touch him. They saw him. He was not just a vision or a ghost. Jesus was a real physical human being in a new resurrected body fit for the new heaven and the new earth. That's what the resurrection was. And Paul is saying to the Corinthians, you guys don't get resurrection, do you? Resurrection means your body today matters because it will be in the future. Now, how much of my body exactly will be in the future? I don't know, but I know that I will be raised and that there will be some continuity between my body now and my body then. Jesus was recognizable. They did know who he was. He even had the scars. Remember the the holes in his hands and the, the wound in his side? There was continuity into his new body. How much, we don't know. But what Paul wants them to know is the resurrection harmonizes the physical and the spiritual and says all of it matters. God cares about matter. Matter matters to him. So we can't simply say, I do with the body what I will because the body will be destroyed. It's what I do with my soul that matters. You don't get it, Paul says. So creation, resurrection, two frames for the law. And now finally, the third one, the third excuse in verse 18, right after he says, flee sexual immorality. um, My translation does not have quotations here, but there are a lot of scholars that think that this is the Corinthians speaking. And I agree because otherwise it doesn't make sense. They say this, every sin other, by the way, is inserted by the ESV translators. It's not in the Greek. Every sin a person commits is outside the body. That's what they say. Okay, so every sin a person commits is outside the body. So it doesn't really matter what we do. It's kind of floating out there. It doesn't really affect anybody. It doesn't affect me at all. Paul answers, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. (laughs) Okay, so yeah, all sins outside the body, fine. But you know what? All sin is affecting your body, okay? That's what he's saying to them. So now he goes into his reason. Verse 19, or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God as a temple glorifies God. Glorify God with your body. So creation, resurrection, and now incarnation. These make the framework for what we're to govern ourselves with without legality or legalism. Incarnation. Paul says, the spirit dwells inside each and every one of you who believe in Jesus. That makes you, do you know what that makes you? A temple. Do you know where gods lived in the ancient times? They believed gods lived in the temple. So you've got this infrastructure and inside is the presence of God. Here's the infrastructure and inside is the presence of God. 
He lives in you. And you know what? If you're God's temple, do you know what that means? You belong to God. Temples were God's houses. It was their sacred space. If you don't believe me, read Leviticus. And oh my goodness, you get the point. God was very serious about how the people entered into his territory. You have to be, doing, you have to be washed this way. You have to wear that. You have to bring that. You can't do that. You can't say that. You can't smell that. Like all these, oh my goodness. You get the point. The temple was God's territory and he dictated how it was to be operated. And this is what Paul says. You are the temple of God. His presence lives in you. Therefore, you are not your own. You are God's property. He dwells in you. This space is his space. I cannot just use my body as I want. I'm not the master of it. He's the master of me. He says, we were bought with a price, which is actually the same word that would be used if you were to buy a prostitute. In other words, if I buy a prostitute, I own her for that evening, right? That's what the Corinthians are doing. Well, God, Paul's saying in an almost twisted illustration, God owns you. He bought you. You don't have liberty. You do what he says. Your body belongs to him. Therefore, you use it as he wants you to use it. And this is what you got to get. As Jesus used his body the way God wanted him to, because he was God in human flesh, you need to realize that you are extensions of Jesus. You are, in a sense, God in human flesh. He lives in you, and you must use your body in a Christ-like manner, because that is what the incarnation is about. And we have become God in human flesh to the people of the world and saying, this is what the kingdom of God looks like. This is what one law looks like, and this is how people live and flourish under it, and this is the oneness that comes under it. So, Corinthians, how are you going to judge yourselves without bringing legalism? I don't know. Figure it out. But understand what it means to rule creation, that Jesus is going to resurrect your body as he was resurrected, and that you are incarnation. As Jesus came to earth, we are on earth to represent God. Figure out what that means and deal with yourselves. But don't keep ignoring the infection. Amen? And so here's the whole point. The one law will teach us how to rule, as Revelation promises we will do, in the new heaven and new earth. And I don't want to be the person that has the street sweeping job. I want to be one of the ones doing things and making things happen. Therefore, maybe we should start learning how God's law works today and enact that with one another, that we will be practiced for then and not... Um, being demoted. I don't know if that happens, but all we know is that Jesus does tell parables about people being appointed more cities than others. I want to be the guy that rules 20 or 10. You can have the podunk town, but I'll, I'll have the cool ones. No, but that's the idea. That's Paul's idea here is he's pleading with them, not just for the sake of their witness around them, not just for the sake of oneness, but so that they can get it. They're, we're ready to go when Jesus returns and we're ready to take over. So that is why we are asked to judge one another, but without establishing legalism. To understand that we're all under one law, not a plethora of laws.